Indiana Jones, when he's got the the second quest to get to the Holy Grail, okay, and he's he's out on the abyss and he's on like the channel and he's looking out and he's got to like take a leap of faith. Right. And he like takes that foot out and he leaves it out and he puts it down and he feels something, right? And I feel like that is the perfect gift for how I feel so often in so many of my projects with my company and with with life in general. It's like I have faith that I'm going to find something when I move forward with this. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Kuffel and I'm joined by Brett Novak, CEO and founder of Liquid and Grit. Today, we'll be interviewing a very special guest, Joseph Kim, in order to glean some tips and insight on how he structures company culture, retrospectives, workflow, and more as a founder of Leela Games. Joseph runs a YouTube channel called Game Makers, He's a regular host on the excellent Deconstructor of Fun podcast, so I'm going to keep this intro short and to the point so we can get into the meat of it. Uh, anything you would like to add, Brett, go right ahead. Before we jump into stuff, I do want to say that Joseph is one of the most, if not the most, giving person <laughs> I have met in mobile gaming, and he has helped me tremendously grow Liquid and Grit, and he's just one of those people that I admire in his altruism and outlook and how he helps people. So we're really... Wow, I appreciate that, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, and we're really thankful that you're on our podcast. Now, all that aside, I do want to jump into the exciting stuff, which is all about your awesome new company, because I think everybody dreams of one day starting a gaming company. In mobile gaming. Even I, with Liquid and Grit, often tell my wife, I think we should start a co- gaming company. Like, I think we should start a game. So you really did it. And that's what we're, that I want to focus on today. And the first is, what is your motivation for starting a mobile gaming company? I mean, we're all excited about it, but you really got to have like that burning desire to do it to really make that leap. So Yeah, well, in, in terms of like the motivation, it was really, from my perspective, it was really to try and build a kind of new kind of organization. It really comes from having worked on the studio side in terms of game development for a bunch of years and then shifting over into publishing. And and I was in publishing for about five years working at Sega, NBC Universal. And one of the things that I noticed is being able to meet with a lot of different studios, seeing how they operated, and just even how we worked at the companies that, that I worked at in the past is that I just felt like there was potentially a better way of doing things. And I think that for sure, a lot of companies will be making mistakes. But I also felt that there were a lot of mistakes that I felt were avoidable. So for me, the opportunity to not only build like an exciting type of product and, you know, uh, I, Brett, I know you know Paul Layden, one of my co-founders, and, you know, he had a really exciting vision awesome, for yeah. some something cool we could build. But For me personally, it was more about what if we could build a kind of organization that would be fundamentally different in important ways, and that would be something that I would be proud of. And so that has to do with things like adopting a certain set of values that I believe in, having an organizational structure that I think would be more efficient and effective than in other companies, also finding sources of what I call structural advantage. And, you know, I can go into that later, but like, that would mean like fundamental ways in which we would have significant leverage or advantages over competition and just generally trying to do things in the right way. Because I I will say that having worked at a number of companies before, I I felt like there are some people 
who are doing things with kind of more of that short, short-sighted, more near-term focus. And then they kind of lose sight of what actually delivers value, right? And what actually creates mm-hmm. something that's valuable and important to people, to, you know, the society that we live in. And so that's fundamentally the, you know, the main reason why I wanted to do this. And before I ask potentially specific details and examples of what you did differently, because I often, we share this in that I started my company for similar reasons in many yep. ways to create a different environment. Do you share what you do? And if you do, do you feel like you're giving away some of that secret sauce? No, I actually, so I think that there's a lot that we try to share actually. And I think that, I just think that there's so much more advantage in terms of building, you know, this notion of tribes, which is essentially like getting groups of like-minded people who, you know, you could talk to, to get advice, to like really test ideas before you actually do them. And I think there are so few people who, you know, even if I shared everything that we know, that the actual execution and getting doing the work is, is so much more important. And I don't think that the world is finite, right? And so, you know, I, I think Simon Sinek popularized the notion of the infinite game, which was based upon a book written earlier. But the fact that I believe that there is so much room to create and to innovate and to build value. And so like, if I were to hoard all the secrets, I just don't think, like if I gave away all the secrets, I think everybody has the potential to create value, create new games, new products, And that, you know, if you believe in sort of the infinite view of the world and of business that, you know, I just don't think it's, it's limiting. I I think that in fact, by sharing and by getting feedback from really smart people in the industry, that if, if that can help me figure out how to do what I'm doing better and by putting it, because I I do think, and I know one of the things that we've talked about Brett before is something that I called the. Well, it's, it's not just me, but in physics, there's the observer effect, right? That if you're being observed, if you know you're being watched, that actually changes behavior. And to get other smart people having their eyes on how I'm doing things and to say, hey, actually, I think that you can improve things if you change this, or I don't believe in, in a certain aspect of how you're doing something, but getting that critical feedback and then being able to improve upon what we have, I think is more critical than trying to, again, try to hoard all those secrets. Cool. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you know, whenever you're creating anything, it's almost impossible to do it in a vacuum. Uh, you need that, at least I do, that kind of bounce off from other people to even realize you were needing to get to that next step, to even realize what that next step would be. And I think that's actually pretty awesome that you uh, are looking more at this kind of overall collaborative view. Right. And I think to your point, Katie, like you do need a team to kind of, you know, that shares a vision. And to some degree, when we do talk about how we think the specific strategy that we have and what we're doing, then if there's somebody else out there who learns of that, then it's, it's actually, it's, it's almost like free recruiting because then the people who actually believe in what we're doing and who can actually help us and join our team become aware of what we're doing. And, and so I do think that that's also a very strong benefit for, for sharing rather than having the opposite in terms of having more of a hoarding type of mentality. All right. Well, since you're willing to share, and since a lot of our listeners are people who are in product and gaming, and that's who we're, we're really 
focused on for this podcast is, you know, what are the, some of the things that you think that you guys do super well that they might be able to benefit from? I think it's a few things. So first, I mean, I would recommend uh, to a lot of folks to read this book from Ray Dalio called Principles. But I, I think that fundamentally we start there, right? We start with like having a system, having a set of values that we all believe in. And so for us, and not to say that we believe that we have the only approach or the only philosophy or system that can be successful. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different football teams and basketball teams that have different kinds of strategies and some work for different types of teams. No caveats needed on this podcast. Otherwise I'll be, otherwise I'll be saying caveats all day long. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) but, but yeah, so we believe in a system of, of, of values. I think that the other thing for us, that's really exciting is that you know, we want to build a, you know, a learning organization. And to be honest with you, when we talk about that kind of stuff in terms of building a learning organization, meaning that in my experience, there are so many companies that are so focused on product, right? And so like, you've got all these, you know, so many companies I've been a part of, it's like, okay, we've got these data scientists, we've got all these product managers, and there's all this analysis on how do we improve D30 retention. How do we do this? How do we do that? And then I'm like, hey, do you know our meetings are totally fucked up and we're not doing anything about it? And they're like, no, 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 don't, don't worry about that. Let's, let's focus on the product. And I'm like, do you know we waste all this time in so many inefficient ways that we're doing things? It's like, no, no, no. And so like, you know, the people that, that we hire at Lila, you know, we tell them you have to attack every process in the company. Right now, we, we can't do everything all at once, but for us to then prioritize not only the product, but the organization, how are we doing as an organization, as a team, whether it's how we conduct meetings, how we come up with a design specification, whatever it is, how do we improve that? And there's another book that I would highly recommend people to check out called Atomic Habits. And Atomic Habits, one of the earliest stories that they talk about is the British Cycling Club. And the British Cycling Club, actually, for I don't know how many years, uh, I forget, like 100, 150 years, never got anywhere in the Olympics. And then they got this new coach. And the coach basically looked at everything that the cycling team did, whether it was the training, what time they woke up, the tires, you know, every single thing, and tried to get a 1% to 5% improvement in every different area. And based upon that, when you look at the holistic improvement across multiple categories, that that allowed them to get significant advantage. And so for us, you know, I do think that in just in my experience, this is one of the biggest problems with most organizations today is that they don't attack, that they have this sense of complacency. And I've been in so many game studios where it's like, hey, you know, where I think I mentioned this to you before, Brett, where, you know, when I, I'll be talking to a PM and it's like, why are we using this PM tool? Uh, well, we've always used this tool. Okay, well, wh- why are you using Jira instead of Asana, instead of Monday, instead of whatever? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I haven't tried it. Aren't you the PM? Yeah. yeah. And so there's this complacency, right? And so I, I think that that's one of the biggest opportunities. And so when, when we go, like, when we're, you know, going to India where there isn't, to be honest with you, there isn't a lot of process, but there is a deep hunger to improve. There are so many people there who want to get better and who are tired of 
all the all the dead end games that get kind of shipped over to them once they're on the decline, right? And so that for us, that's one of the big opportunities. And again, a source of for us structural advantage, if because for us bringing in leads who have seen a lot of best practices and processes to be able to teach that team in India. It's very similar to what happened when I worked at Fun Plus in Beijing. You know, there was similar lack of process, a lot of manual things that were being done. And then by, you know, cleaning things up and, and over time, you're able to train people who are smart, who are motivated to become significantly better. Yeah. And it's almost like, I think some people kind of need a deprogramming where they're so used to like a certain status quo or to certain processes that having it be open and explicitly said that, hey, you need to look at everything we're doing with a fine tooth comb and see where we can improve. And that is totally okay to do. I think that's something that a lot of people aren't used to necessarily. Sure. Yeah. And I I think that, and so that part, it felt to me like if I were to join another organization, I mean, it has to come from the top, right? It has to come from our group as co-founders and, and from the leadership in order to make sure that that kind of a culture, those values are instilled across the organization. And so going back to why did I want to start a game studio? Why did I want to start Leela? That's fundamentally one of the key reasons I wanted to do it. See if we could actually pull this off. Yeah. And so you made the decision, but if we back up a little bit more, what was the actual process of deciding to take that leap? Did you have to convince people? Was there a lot of late nights in, in your brain thinking things over? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, this is something I, it was probably in my mind for a while, like, I don't know how many years, but I just didn't really take it seriously. But then, you know, an opportunity came for me and and I, you know, just kind of hooking up with one of my co-founders, Paul. And then when, when I met with Paul, we basically had kind of like business product guy and myself and then a designer and Paul, but we really lacked development. So the, the next phase for us was really trying to figure out, well, how do we partner with or find somebody who could be like a CTO type of person? And so that was kind of the next phase. And that's part of the phase that led us to India. And then one of the reasons why we are now essentially trying to build up and be centralized and headquartered in India. I don't know if you've read this book, but have you read High Velocity Organizations? I have not. Yeah. It's a similar concept in that basically in organizations that are high velocity, they, they look at, they basically look at fixing everything because more so on the negative side is that terrible things happen when random things that happen all the time all match up sort of like a Christmas tree. Like all these little mistakes are happening all the time, but if they all are turned on at the same time, that's when like really bad things happen. Sure. Um, And they go through these examples like Chernobyl and, and other things that happen. And I think what you're getting at is this focus on improvement that you have to do all the time. You can't just say like, okay, for 10% or 20% or 50% of the time, you're going to really analyze product. And and then the other 10, 20% of the time, you're just going to do whatever. And so I think if you can create this culture of doing it everywhere, it's it's almost not, you do get value from the other areas. Like you may get more value from going to Asana to Jira, but I think you get more value from just this continual focus on it. So that when you do find that thing, whether it be, Asana or your spec writing or your 
the testing process or whatever it is. That's the thing that unlocks it. But you would never have unlocked that thing if you hadn't had this discipline and this focus on just constantly reviewing different things in different aspects of your organization. Yeah, it's a notion of essentially having an experimentation fr- framework, but it's also the notion of, to your point, Brett, having retrospectives. And I think it's easier when I explain it to people, when I ask them, like people who understand sports or you know football or even esports understand this really well. Like if you look at the best esports players in the world. And if you looked at their schedule, I mean, you, they've got like three or four hours a day where they not only play, but they review footage and they review their gameplay. And they're like, ah, okay, this is what I should have done when I was playing. And you talk to any football coach and you ask them after a win or loss, hey, coach, how did the team do? And oftentimes the coach will say, you know what? I don't know. I'm going to have to look at the tape. And, and so that notion of being able to improve through review and retrospective is, is very, very important. And one in which I think that a lot of companies just don't do, a lot of people just don't do. And so they just, and that's what leads to the complacency. They just kind of do stuff. They don't review. They don't have an experimentation framework. They are too complacent. And I would say the one other thing that isn't talked about because people just don't like to talk about it is the politicization of so many organizations, right? It, because One thing that often happens with a lot of organizations is this problem around accountability and responsibility and just being able to say, to have direct conversations like, hey, this this problem is because of Fred or Sally or being able to actually do a root cause analysis and not get somebody in trouble. Or, you know, there's so many organizations where leaders, so-called leaders, will tell some tell a direct report to do it this way. And if it fails, then it's the direct report's fault. And if it succeeds, they take credit for it. So there is this other part of it with respect to culture, with respect to transparency and how things are, you know, sort of organized in the values of the company that can fundamentally like put those companies at a major structural advantage to a company like mine where you know, we don't try to blame each other, right? We just try to find out what is a problem and how to solve it. This is an interesting point because I think the video, I mean, as you know, I was an athlete. The The, the tool of videos is is incredible. And anecdotally, I record my son's basketball <laughs> games so I don't embarrass myself and scream at everybody and, and do God knows what else. My dad was a super intense dad. I'm a super intense dad with this stuff. I won't go into a side story about that, but basically my wife was like, why are you so intense? And I thought I was being awesome. Like I thought I was being so chill. <laughs> and she's like, you're being crazy. I would record the games and then he might be like, hey, you know, you should try this. And my son would be like, no, I don't do that. You know? And I'd bring out the tape and I would just bring on my iPad and show him the video. And the next game, he would do exactly what we talked about. I mean, just exactly what he talked about because he could just see it. And it's such a powerful mechanic that we see in the NFL and all sports and everything like that. And we don't do it. And actually something that frustrated me when I was working is like, we never learn, we never practice. Right. That said, if there's something I didn't carry over to liquid and grit, it's this. I'm curious if you haven't already talked about it somewhere else. So just, just cut me off if you are like, yeah, we did a video on this. Like you've talked about retrospectives a few times. Have you like walked through it for other people? And if not, can we talk about it now? And retrospectives, like I'm actually pretty curious about this because we do not, we do not do this well. Can I mean, have you talked about it? And if not, can we, can we sure. do it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, so I think everyone gets the general notion of a retrospective, but I think that 
in especially in development, it's it's I would say that retrospectives are more commonplace. But I would say that let's just talk about that retrospective first. And then I can tell you about some of the ways in which we're trying to do it. And again, you know, we're not we're not the masters of it yet, but we're no, making no caveats, no <laughs> caveats on this, the no caveat podcast. I would say that. Yeah, how the do you big, do? No, how do you do retrospectives? I, I'm curious. Okay, we don't do well, them. We're adopting it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would say the first thing that's the most critical is just in terms of how the retrospective is is treated, right? Because so, for example, do does now, almost do every you do it every week or do you do it after a specific we do it every thing week. happens every we, week we do right? it every week because a we, lot of them are when we do it on a week long and month long cadence so and and I'll go into that but I, the first point I do want to make though is that a lot of companies are going to say just like when I say hey we're we, we're trying to build this learning organization I talk to a lot of CEOs about this and they literally yeah. roll their fucking eyes at me and they're just like oh yeah yeah we do that too yeah. like yeah, yeah right but like many most if not all, not not all. Okay, so most development student, like development teams, will have a retrospective, like a sprint retrospective of some kind. And m- most projects, you know, including PMs, the business people, will have retrospectives. But I would say that virtually all of the retrospectives that I have seen are not honest, right? And it's like, oh, this product failed because the CPIs were so high, the marketing costs were so high. In the actual reason, and this this comes down to being able to do true root cause analysis, which very few organizations will actually do, even though it, it like one, few organizations know how to do root cause analysis well. But secondly, even if they do, it's just not politically possible to actually do a true root cause analysis. Because if you throw Bill under the bus or Jill under the bus, and it's you know it's it's over. And in some in some cases, it's going to be the leadership who's at fault. And if you say, "Hey, boss, you know actually this product failed because of you," <laughs> you know, and then 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 you're gone. <laughs> Believe me, I I know. <laughs> this was this was a this is a bizarre thing that I experienced in the working world was blame. I mean, yes. I, I'll be honest, like mm-hmm. I don't at Liquid and Grit. I can confidently say we don't have blame. There's no blame. I mean, I'm the owner of the company, so all blame falls under me and no blame falls elsewhere. And that's not just me saying that. Everyone on the team knows that there's... It's just not a concept that I think is important in a business. There's fixing the problem and identifying the problem. The the concept of blame is just like a human emotional thing, right? right? I I do think it's difficult, right? Like having a solutions-oriented approach and philosophy and outlook is very difficult. And if I'm being honest, for most of my career, I was the other guy. I was the complainer. I was the whiner. I was like, yeah, they're screwing up, they're screwing up and just complaining and whining. But when I went to Fun Plus, one of the founders of Fun Plus, Yitao, sat me down and, and it took him working with me. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's stupid. Why am I complaining instead of just focusing on the problem? If I spent as much time that I was complaining, focusing on the problem, we would have a much better product and solution. And like being able to reorient yourself around that does take someone to kind of slap you around a little bit and say, hey, look, wake up. That's not the Mm -hmm. right way. And so I I understand it is hard. Not everyone, I would say uh, the majority of people are not that way, but they can be. And if I can change, anyone can change. So, you know, that part is difficult, but well, I found of, that the retrospectives can sometimes 
facilitate that in some ways because people think of retrospectives as always a negative. So you'd get in them and then they'd be like, well, I don't like this. The bad column would be like 50 long, you know, which is fine. You're trying to fix problems. But I I would say one thing is that we do try to be as transparent as possible. So one of the things that we have in our company is on a daily basis. So uh, uh, well, let me start at the beginning. So at the beginning of the week, we set weekly objectives for ourselves. And we have this other thing that um, kind of Paul created that we, we now call the bullseye framework, which basically says that there are all these things in terms of priority, like, like in different areas, as far as our company and the product, things that we need to be focused on or working on or key risks that could kill the company or kill the product. And so in each of these categories, we have things that we need to do or be mindful of in terms of risk. And then amongst those things, we identify a bullseye category, meaning that the number one thing that we have to be apprised of or that we need to work on for the week. And based upon our bullseye, we set up tasks. How do we achieve our bullseye? And so so then at the beginning of the week, we set our objective for the end of the week. And then on a daily basis, we have this uh, we have this notion of having daily notes. And so everyone in the company, including me as CEO, I will write down. And it was, it was initially designed to be that at the end of the day, you kind of write down all the things that you've accomplished, any problems that you've you come across, and any blockers. And naturally, what you see the advantage of this is that to, to the point that we've already talked about before, Brett, on other podcasts is like it eliminates the need for meetings and that there's this transparency where it's like I may write something down, but somebody else, maybe somebody in engineering, somebody else realizes what I'm working on and, and can just weigh and be like, hey, actually, I know something about this. Or guess what? You don't need to do that because there's already this thing over here or things of that nature. So for us, the transparency isn't about like trying to watch people and like, you know, you know, kind of micro them, but more about just being honest about this is what I'm working on just so everyone can know. And here are the problems and issues that I'm encountering. And at the, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't take a lot of time. And now I actually enjoy doing it where I just keep a window open. And as I do stuff, I just kind of write it down in anything that I encounter throughout the day, I write down. So then we have, again, just to reiterate at the beginning of the week, objectives for the end of the week, we put it into, you know, we used to use Asana, but we've recently switched to Monday that kind of lays out all the, all the key objectives that we have for the week and roughly around when we would accomplish them. Then we have the daily notes at the end of the day. And, you know, it sounds kind of onerous, but literally it takes a few minutes a day. And then at the end of the week, we have our retrospective, you know, and we talk about all those tasks that we try to accomplish. Yes, I accomplished all my tasks or actually I didn't get a lot done because of this or this task that I thought would take so long actually took a lot longer. And then we try to figure out how we can do things better. And one of the advantages, one of the reasons we switched to Monday is that when we actually write down our tasks and just, you know, we write like rough estimates for how long um, those tasks take, that we can then, you can create custom dashboards and see like, where is your time going? And you really get to see visually how you're doing. And so that's, that happens on, uh, so, so I would say that actually we have we have a sense of retrospective on a daily basis in the sense that after you write your daily notes, you kind of think about what did I accomplish during the day, any blockers, issues, problems that have happened. At the end of the week, we share as a team. And then what we do on a monthly basis, we're just starting this, is essentially like the Deloitte Consulting framework of start, stop, continue. So for 
the in a 360 degree way for so for me with our co-founders and then uh for people on the team you know what should you you know start doing what should you stop doing and what should you continue doing shout out to deloitte my wife's a deloitte consultant so <laughs> Uh, yeah. So talk about a little bit more about the meeting itself, because I think that's kind of a, I mean, you talk about honesty, obviously that's a, a principles type concept from the, the yep. book that you referenced earlier, which I've also read. Um, but talk about like, I mean, it's obviously one thing to say, oh, we have an honest organization. And like you said, a lot of people are going to be rolling their eyes listening to this yeah. and say, yeah, right, Joseph, we all know you're nice all the time. <laughs> how, how are how does how do you facilitate that? I mean, I know it comes from the top and, but in some facilitate ways, which? but you know, being honest, you know, and really going through stuff because the thing that falls down for me with Scrum and everything is just the gamification of it, right? I did 15 things and you're like, yeah, you know, 14 of those were emails, right? So you did really one thing this week or saying that it's harder than it is or saying it's easier or not predicting it and all these different things. And then you get to the end of the week and it's, it's really hard to gauge. So, you know, honestly, like in comparison, we don't do any of that. Here at Liquid and Grit. And yeah. And I would say that that's the single hardest thing I think for anyone, right? Being able to tell somebody that you think what they're doing sucks or that they need to improve something is very, very difficult. And, you know, and I've been doing it for years and it's still difficult for me. I still have a hard time doing it. And so I think, honestly speaking, it's very difficult, but I think it starts with having a culture where you're teaching people to do it. And where, you know, I, literally practice makes perfect. And, you know, there's a saying in football that you play like you practice. And so being able to get people to start small. And, you know, we have a, we actually have an employee level system where we try to get people to read certain books, to do certain activities. And at the end of every level, they get, you know, they get prizes and stuff. And, and in our employee directory, you can see, okay, you know, Devarshi's level six, this, you know, uh, some, this other guy's level two, and, and, and you, you can kind of see where everybody is. You know, it starts by starting to have feedback, having retrospectives, and, but it also comes from the, from the top like me, you know, whether it's with my direct reports or whether it's with my co-founders having those direct conversations and just doing it in a respectful way, right? Because I mean, there's there's direct feedback where you can just try to like beat somebody down, but that's not what we want to do. We want to just do it in as respectful a way as possible. And, you know, and having the direct feedback doesn't mean that you need to like yell and scream at somebody in front of their team. And, you know, I've done that before. Uh, and sometimes maybe it might be necessary. Uh, hopefully it's not. but I would say, generally speaking, we, we try to give feedback in the way that it's intent, intended, like as if you would be giving feedback to somebody in your family, like a brother or sister or something like that. Okay, so let's go, let's talk a little bit about that because I'll, I basically <laughs> structure my company so I never have to give that kind of awkward <laughs> feedback. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what, we don't have meetings, we don't talk. So I've avoided the uncomfortable feedback loop, which is it helps me because I don't like doing it. And and I've actually had a hard time doing it in other environments because I'm a, a bigger person. I'm a six, two and a half. I'm, you know, a bigger guy. If I give someone feedback that I think is like a level three, a lot of times they're interpreting it as level seven. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I just say? Uh, you know, it's like, anyways, so let's like that. I feel like, and that again is a big principles thing is I, I don't know if you go to that extreme, but if you guys know the book principles, 
uh, they talk about how in their was it Blackstone or, or Blackrock? I can't remember the company that Black, Bridge. Blackstone. Oh, Bridgewater. No, no. Bridgewater. Bridgewater. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they are a hundred percent like every, everyone says exactly what they think. So that's like their whole motto. And it can, I mean, for other people on the outside, it can be kind of brash, right? Like what are some of the techniques that have worked for you for having those difficult conversations and starting small is, is a good example of it, but what else has you've seen? Honestly, it's just, it, it literally is just practice and doing it. And, you know, a common, common thing that we, a common saying that we have in our company is, you know what, we're just going to belly flop through it. Meaning the initial attempts are going to be so awkward and so uncomfortable, but you just keep doing it until you get better at it. I, I don't know if you heard the story of, of why we started the Deconstructor of Fun, you know, this week in games podcast, Brett, but it was because, you know, a few years back, I was invited to a conference in at Rovio in Helsinki. And when I went out there, so Mishka asked me to do a podcast and I was so bad. I was like, so terrible that I was like, you know, I was like, shit, Mishka, that was freaking terrible. And he said, you know, I didn't, I didn't get better until I did 10 of them. And so that's why I was like, okay, what can I do so that I practice this on a regular basis? And that was the whole origin story behind this week in games. Well, if, you know, what's easy? Well, we could just talk about news every week and then we'd have something to talk about. And over time I'd get better. And we basically belly flop through that, right? Like the initial episodes mm-hmm. were terrible. And I mean, you know, it's not, not that it's fantastic now, but it's a lot better than when I started for sure. Yeah. It's like awesome. breaking this myth that people are assuming your expertise <laughs> Like for everyday things or like things that you were already getting better at. Uh, And I think, again, that just comes to what you were saying, like constantly practicing. And it takes, you know, some critical humility is what I'll call it to be able to look at yourself and look at what you're doing and almost extend that same courtesy to the people you're working with. Yeah. And so to that, to your point, Katie, like, yeah, you have to have... I think the people who are too focused on their self-image or, you know, they worry about things that don't matter, right? And so, like, Mm -hmm. what should matter is that you're improving, that you're getting better and not, like, how you are at a certain point in time. So one of the things we tell our employees is, like, you know, like, guys, we are imperfect. We suck as co-founders. And we're trying to get better, too, just like you guys are. And I, I, I think that that you know, hopefully makes them feel better about making mistakes because fundamentally, you know, without making mistakes, we can't improve. And I think that starting small is an awesome point because there's a a good book about Bill Walton, the famous basketball coach, where they watched him and they observed him, these these, uh, social scientists, and they tracked him. And what they found, what he did was just minor tweaks and minor comments over and over again, but he did it all the time. And I think so he was just, you know, hey, switch this, move your foot here, change this. And I think what that allows you to do is it doesn't, it removes the need to sit down and have a serious talk about this all needs to change. And it's not an event anymore. It's just a yeah. daily thing. Which those talks never go well, but I have learned if you do those talks, I would prescript it, literally prescript the entire thing and read it. But thankfully, I don't have the, we don't have to do that here, but the, the little tweaks do two things. One, they, uh, they alleviate the, the need for the big ones, but also they make it so that these moments of feedback are normal. 
And then yeah. people have the layer of skin on them all the time that they need to have to get these. And what we say here at Liquid and Grit is we have no managers and we're all managers, meaning there's nobody that isn't going to get that from everyone else. Just if I put something out there, I have people comment on my stuff. If someone else puts something out there, it's not like the only person that can comment on that is their editor or their lead or whatever it is. Everybody's a right. Everyone's a creator and everyone's an editor in our company. And that makes it so that it's so normal that it doesn't feel like that, uh, you know, the, the thing that everyone associates feedback with, which is that yucky moment where you're like, uh, yeah, you know, or whatever, however you interpret feedback. But I think that's really critical to it all um, is, is just having it be kind of constant, but small. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And there, you know, I mentioned atomic habits, but one of the things that they say in atomic habits is just, you need to just get the practice going. If you're trying to read a book, read one page a day and then read two pages a day. Then, you know, but then getting that habit and then building that discipline, because discipline is like a muscle, right? I mean, the more you do it, the stronger and stronger it gets. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, there's a saying where I think, which has probably inspired that feeling of faith and knowing that this is the practice of what I have to do to make these next steps is this thing where you have to be lucky, but you also have to be very prepared for when luck happens. And so I think that continuous prep that you have been doing allows you to take those leaps of faith, which is, I don't know, just very fascinating to hear about. The other thing to do would just be to regularly check in on, are these things actually working for us, right? And so even though we have a specific practice, you know, we're, we're just starting the start, stop, continue, but, you know, see how impactful it is. Like, you know, after we do it for three, four months, is it actually leading to a change in behavior? How are people feeling about it? How can we improve it? And so I would just say the other thing about retrospectives is that, you know, just look at everything and just measure it and see, see how well it's actually affecting the company. If it's not, then change it. And I do think okay. that when, when you try to improve processes, like, a lot of the times, a lot of them aren't going to work, and then just don't be afraid to throw it out. Awesome. So I've got I've got one more thing that I want to so hopefully sneak out of you. There was murmurs of a really cool spec process that you guys did that they were you were mentioning about. Maybe you'd be doing uh, a video about <laughs> it, or maybe is that yeah, is that over yeah, the line, so, or is yeah, that yeah. no 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 that... that's so I've talked about complacency. I've talked about how people just do things the same way over and over again. If mm. you think about a game design. Like, how do people write game designs today and how have they been doing it for a really long time? Well, I mean, oftentimes what you see are very long Word docs or, you know, Google docs of some kind that are very lengthy and that, you know, speak to a specific game design, but, you know, aren't perfect. And I think we first encountered this when we were at Fun Plus and, you know, the initial specs for a lot of designs for King of Avalon were like 50 page like bibles being read by chinese engineers who didn't have a great command of the english language and so they're sitting there it's like why are you starting on dev and you know they're like i'm, I'm on page three you know, like, it's been a week come on guys right and so and, and, nothing wrong with that process there's nothing wrong uh and and so like what we found was, well, you know, in, in, at Fun Plus, so we, we completely shifted to more of a visual style and more of a style where it's just like, guys, just freaking bullet points, right? Let's, let's get these things down. Bullet points, images, 
and uh, things of that nature. And one thing, so, you know, sometimes Paul and I will talk to different studios and companies like, and, and, and external companies, again, to kind of share knowledge, try to share best practices and kind of see how people are doing things and see if we can't share different ways of making things better. And one of the companies that we talked to is Rogue Harbor. And one of the things that they mentioned is like, you know what? We don't have design specs anymore. We just have UI UX flows. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, and we also do UI UX flows, but that's not like the central part of our design spec. And so that got us thinking a lot about, well, what if we've seen it? It's kind of like the first person to do like a, you know, six minute mile or whatever. And like after that first person, everybody does it, right? And then so for us, we were like, what if we fundamentally rethought how we were to do a game design spec? Does a 30, 50 page Word doc make sense in the current world of technology, cloud-based, you know, Miro, visual types of things and the different types of data specification that are required for a game design. A game design requires a lot of things. It requires written explanation. It requires visual explanation. It requires data schema, spreadsheets, UI, UX flows. So when you fundamentally think about what does a what is a document? What does it actually mean to be a document? Is it just text or can it be something else? Oftentimes the the way that that you know I challenge Paul is to say, hey, look, okay, here's a problem. See if you can figure something out. And so Paul kind of came up with something that he called a visual, well, I, I call it visual frame, but he kind of created the system where you know we now think about features in terms of specific design cells. And those cells could be, uh, they're essentially a collection of things that describe the feature, right? And so I, not to like go into the weeds on this, but long story short, what oh. we're fundamentally saying is that <laughs> a super long ass Word doc, we don't think is what design specs of the future should be looking like or, or of the current. We, the technology exists to not do that. So the, so the new spec has been working well, which is great. And it, well, and it I, helps the team. Because so the one caveat I will say at a high level that yeah. I found with getting too prescriptive with a spec is that you get you hand it off to somebody who gets this thing and they're like uh, burned out. You know, they're getting told what to do, right? And it's, it's really important, I found, to give the right amount of information, but not so much, yeah. right? And specifically with UX, UI, yeah. I found as a PM... I would intentionally make crappy drawings, like really crappy, so that the designers would be so annoyed with it and they would you'd be like, I gotta redo this whole thing and make it beautiful. You know, like they would, they, that was my intention. Whereas other PMs would get into their balsamic tool, whatever they would use, and they would make like this, what they thought the UI UX was, and then they hand it to the UI UX person who was, Kind of annoyed that someone was basically telling him what to do then they the ux and ui person would just kind of like fix it a little bit and hand it back and be like here you go and i'm telling and and it would be crappy because i'm like yo yeah you're not a ux ui guy i don't know if you got the memo so that really worked for me so i'm interested do you find that the document allows you to be less prescriptive and or prescriptive enough or 
you know, again, I'm well, not I mean, I think it's, it's, it. it's a work in progress. Currently it does some things a lot better and other things we're going to have to keep improving upon it. But I think that the, what's clear to me is that the design specs of the future will most likely be some version of what we're working on right now. The way that specs are currently being done to me just don't make sense anymore. Okay. And last question about this is, can you tell us what tool you use for it? Like what technology? Because I'm kind of well, curious for my own company vision. Yeah, I mean, I would say that one of the tools that we are using quite a lot is Miro. And so we're trying to put yeah, everything in, into Miro. I don't know Miro. As, as much as we can. Mm -mm. What is Miro? Tell me. I Miro is like then. a visual board where it's like, imagine you had an open canvas and you can just kind of drop. I don't know if you've ever used a tool like Lucidchart, but it's kind of like a like a lucid chart where you can drop different elements, put in templates, you know, kind of, you can add in text or images or links. Um, and that's the, the flexibility in terms of, as I mentioned before, what does it mean to be a document, right? And so by being able to mix videos, mix text, mix images, like paste in UI UX, it's the tool right now that we're finding is the easiest to accomplish that vision. You and I are both like the the, the the only two Dropbox paper users out there is Joseph, <laughs> it's Joseph and I. Well, yeah, I think it's great superior. because yeah. you can drop in videos and images like you're talking yeah. about mm -hmm. really easily, right? And, and check boxes and things like that. Even a small feature, even the, the small feature, which is you can cut and paste a link onto just a select. You don't have to select, go to a, press a link button, put it into the box uh -huh. and hit okay. You know what I'm saying? Like even yeah. that to me is just like, Wow. And then what does a page mean anymore? Why do you have why do we have pages instead of just a long ass scroll? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, again, this is like people the you know, this is complacency. It's like this is how we did it before and yeah. we're going to take the old shit and we're going to force it into the new stuff. No, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I want to be conscious of your time, Joseph, dude. This has been pretty awesome. I don't know, Katie, if you have any closing like last comments you want, but Joseph is a he does like a million things. The guy's the, the VJ of mobile <laughs> gaming and not to mention a CEO and the hardest working guy I know in mobile gaming. So no, yeah, I, I was just happy to glean what I could. And greedily, I was just super excited to get to talk to you and kind of pick at your brain and see what <laughs> insights you had. So thank you so much for your time, Joseph. No problem. Yeah, it was fun. And as I said, as I mentioned before, if for, for those of you, I don't know if this was recorded, but huge fan of Brett. If you haven't checked out Liquid and Grit, you got to. <laughs> well, thank you, Joseph. As always, you're the man. Uh, you know, check out your podcast, your videos on YouTube. And, uh, you know, feel free to, I mean, I've got to imagine, feel free to reach out to Joseph and say hello. You're, I mean, the most connected dude in mobile gaming. Is that, is that a fair statement? <laughs> I'm the sure there are much person? better and more well-connected people than me, but you know, as a, as an old guy, I do know a few people. So. All right. All right. <laughs> Anyways, thank you. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a, it's a wrap. 